Canto 19 of The Paradise begins with this splendid eagle stretching its wings, the creature that had formed before Dante's eyes, made up of all these souls who, from within, are united. And he says that it looked like as many rubies set in a great jewel. And it's a wonderful image because I guess when you look at something like a crown made up of many jewels, there's the splendour of the crown as a whole, but then there's each of the jewels themselves dazzling in their own particular way. It's a very fractal image. You know, one jewel somehow reflects the light that is completely sympathetic with the way that the crown as a whole, or now as Dante looks, the eagle as a whole reflects the light. And he says that it's also as if the eagle was there just for him, because he describes how each ray of light that comes off the whole and off the individual jewels enters his eye and speaks to him in its entirety and then in its many particularities directly as well. It's a multi-layered description he gives which the experience of seeing a dazzling crown, say, made of many jewels, um, would bring. And it sets up an even deeper mystery, which he describes as no ink ever having described, no eye ever having seen, no fantasy ever having received. Um, and by that he means that the image which is given off by what he sees um, in terms of the fantasy rather than just the imagination, he's stressing that he's actually seeing this. And he says that what he saw can only be intimated at by... The fact that when he heard the eagle speak, although it said I and mine, i.e. spoke in the first person singular as if it was a unity, it at the same time conveyed to him we and ours in the first person plural. He simultaneously heard the eagle speak in a uniform voice, but it was made up of each of those individual souls speaking with the full faculty of their harmonious soul. Um, this understanding of justice, where each individual soul that he sees before him now in the, in the eagle um, was comprised of a harmonious soul. The many parts have become aligned here in the sphere of Jupiter, so that like the jewel reflecting the ray of light directly to Dante, each soul directly reflects the light of God's justice to Dante. But that adds up to the eagle as a whole speaking as well, so that the eye and mine seamlessly inter, um, interwoven with the me, with the we and ours. And Helen Luke, in her commentary, makes the very nice comment that um, this is an eagle speaking not a parrot, if each of those souls had just been parroting what they had been told of God, the experience would not have been this dazzling, interwoven joy of multiple layers speaking at Dante now. And the eagle, first of all, tells him that they are the souls of those who have ruled with a substantial reflection of this divine justice on earth, and that's why they're now appearing before Dante. Moreover, in that reflection on earth of divine justice, 
people on earth might themselves begin to intimate divine justice. You remember that in the previous canto, Dante had set up this layering effect in this sense too, that earthly justice is but a reflection, you know, more or less good of the divine justice, and divine justice itself exceeds even what these rulers could comprehend. So we have this, again, sense of kind of cascading um, down from the, the highest reaches of divine justice through its many different kind of manifestations on earth. And our task when we contemplate divine justice is to perceive the true light reflected through the jewels of good rulers on earth, and even perhaps in the poorer quality rulers who reflect divine justice to less and less extent. And in fact, I think by the end of this canto, Dante is even going to be seeing that even those rulers on earth who don't reflect divine justice in a funny sort of way do, because it's the fact that they don't that makes you yearn for the true justice, the true light that you notice by its absence in the poor rulers. Dante throws in a couple more analogies at this point. Um, he says that they were like the many coals burning in the one fire. Um, you know, each coal burns in its own particular way, and yet its glow makes up the whole glow of the fire. Or he says that they were like a field of flowers, each flower living its own life to its fullest capacity, giving off its scent, and yet the scent of the meadow strikes you as an entirety, as one in its complex layers. Um, this sense of multiplicity and unity coming together once more. And Dante then moves on to a question that has been burning in his heart, actually right the way through the Divine Comedy, and I guess was a key one in his life. And it's a question of justice that itself has many layers. Um, the crudest way of putting it would be how can those who had not heard of Christianity be condemned by God? It just seems profoundly unjust. It's an issue that many people today would raise, and let alone in Dante's time. It's the crude sense of how can you possibly be condemned for that which you didn't even know if you weren't a Christian, if you were born before Christ, if you were born in a place where Christianity wasn't known. But as well as the crude, very direct issue, is this more subtle business of what is it even to really know Christ? You know, much as someone might be crowned a king or ordained a ruler, um, they may be no king, they may be no ruler, so poor is their exercise of what they've been given. And so it raises the question too of how even those who have known Christ, who call themselves Christian, how they might know God truly, um, because it might well be that their soul, although part of it knows of Christianity, hasn't harmonised with the divine truth, isn't reflecting God's light. And so even those who are called Christian may be no real Christian at all. In this sphere of Jupiter, what is being focused on is how these many elements come together and form an ordered whole that most fully and truly reflects the divine light, like a dazzling jewel and so joins up with all the other jewels to speak of God. It's a really deep question in fact and even 
can be pushed a stage further, which is to say, how can it be that we limited human beings, even if realising as fully as a human being can the divine light, how can we still know the divine light? Because inevitably, our reflection is going to be just that, a reflection. It's going to offer only a glimpse of the divine light. And if it's really important that that divine light resonates within ourselves so that we can participate in the divine light, how can it be that we can participate in God's life? Because our participation is inevitably going to be limited. And what the eagle replies is, first of all, to offer in a way a theology of plenitude. Um, the eagle says that God creates from an infinite excess. There is always more. There is always unknown depths, unknown reaches, more to see and enjoy in the divine life. And so what is important is to realise, first of all, how we can only grasp a reflection of that divine life as creatures. And it's in that recognition of the limitation of our reflection that we also gain the sense of how much more there might be to enjoy. So the divine plenitude meets human finitude and by stirring up desire, particularly the love and the longing and the yearning for more, the realisation, for example, that whilst Dante hears the eagle speaking with one voice, it's many voices speaking together in a mysterious way. Whilst he sees the individual jewels, they make up the many jewels. So too, our particular and individual reception of the divine life carries us spontaneously towards more of the divine life when we realise it's coming from this place of finitude. And the eagle then says that this is what Lucifer didn't realise, that Lucifer, who was the angel closest to God, the creature who was the most beautiful, didn't realise that it was by accepting his limitation, nonetheless, of his reflection of the divine beauty. He refused to accept that. And that meant that he cut himself off from even more of the divine life than he had heretofore received, and so fell. There's a strange paradox that for we creatures, it's by realising how we don't reflect the divine light as much as how much we do, that we become capable of reflecting more and more and more. It's what the mystics say. It's why mystics say that although knowledge and awareness of God is crucial, love and desire for God is even more important because it's that love and desire that sustains the dynamic of movement more and more into divine life. This enables us to recognise that the light we do see carries and comes from a place of even brighter, more glorious light. And the eagle compares it to thinking about the depths of the ocean. And whilst we can see the bottom of the sea in the shallows, further out, the depths of the ocean disappear from view. And yet somehow we sense it's there maybe even as you tread water in deep oceans, and you sense the depth of what lies beneath you, what's known of what might be there, what's not known of what might be there. Um, it feels like swimming in an infinite sea to be moving towards the divine, but you've got to recognise that you're swimming in an infinite sea as a finite being in order to do so.
The eagle then reiterates Dante's main question very fully, very forcibly, and says, look, I understand your question. We understand your question. Remember in this celestial telepathy. It's as if you're asking how can someone from the Indus, how can a Hindu who never knew of Christ be condemned, be found guilty? They never had the opportunity to be baptised. How can therefore they be cast into outer darkness, in parenthesis, as the clunky orthodoxy of the church might well teach? And the first thing that the eagle does in response to naming Dante's question um, so literally is to chastise Dante, actually. It's to say, how can you pass judgment as a finite creature when you can barely discern your own life, let alone the lives of others? And this is a crucial part of accepting finitude. Again, it's sort of what Lucifer wasn't able to accept, that recognising our own limited capacity for judgment isn't just to be humble, but it's to be humble in the sense of putting yourself in a place where, like the sea being at the lowest point, more and more can flow into it, can flow into us. It's paradoxically by accepting our finitude that we become capable of the infinite, because what it does is it stirs up this desire and longing and openness and receptivity to more. And the eagle then curses human individuals who think they speak with the divine voice. They're fools, they're ignorant, and they cut themselves off from God, even as they claim to speak from God. Then the mood changes slightly because the eagle, Dante says, seemed to circle around him like a stork who was feeding its young. It's a tender image now, and this juxtaposition of images um, I think is really important because it sets up the dynamic for being able to move on further. You know, if it was just a yes or no answer, are Christians and non-Christians saved, um, then in a way the life would fall out of this situation. And it wouldn't communicate any more life, any new life to Dante at all. It's because he is engaging with these paradoxes, with these different moods, that he's able to move more deeply into, well, the light of Jupiter. He was able to harmonise that little bit more within his own soul and so become that little bit more capable of receiving the infinite divine life. The eagle then asserts once more that divine justice is literally incomprehensible to mortals. But Dante now hears that as the beginning of good news because it's this invitation to enter more into divine life. And then the eagle asserts something that brings us up short. But again, I think in this dynamic is deliberately supposed to do so to make us ready to receive a new insight, which ultimately is actually going to come in the next canto. Because the eagle says, and yet, in spite of all I have said, no one ever comes to heaven unless through Christ. Now this is the traditional Christian teaching, um, but the eagle's beginning to give it a different inflection, because what he's going to stress is that coming to heaven through Christ means a whole lot more than just becoming a Christian. And in fact, the canto ends with a long series of condemnations of so-called Christian rulers who, the eagle says, 
completely failed on this account. And I think that this both stresses to Dante that what might seem apparent, a Christian ruler therefore must be operating in God's name and know of God's life, doesn't necessarily follow at all. I mean, in fact, there are plenty of examples from Dante's own time, which the eagle gives him now, where that clearly is not the case. And interestingly, the list of a dozen or so kings and rulers spreads right across Europe. Um, the eagle is stressing that this happens right across Western Christianity, right across Christendom. Even though it's called Christendom, it is not necessarily manifesting divine life at all. And just coming back to the reference to the Indus, to the Hindus before, the eagle adds, in fact, an Ethiop, um, someone from another part of the world outside of Christianity at the time, from southern Africa, may well end up condemning a Christian in heaven, because the intimation is that somehow the Ethiop might know more of Christ than the so-called Christian does. This canto is beginning to nudge quite explicitly towards a Christianity beyond Christianity, you might say. Now, that's going to be developed more in the next canto, but a final thought I had is this reminds me very much of the parable of the wheat and the tares, and Augustine's commentary on this. Um, the parable is that a field grows with a mixture of wheat and tares, and the advice is not to try and pull out the tares before the harvest, because you'll end up pulling out the wheat as well. So you've got to wait for the harvest. And the implication is that here in mortal life, we've got to wait until immortal life, till infinitude, till God becomes present, um, because we'll make mistakes. And Augustine stresses that this isn't just about trying to be an earthly judge and judging who is a Christian and who isn't. And that is going to fail because you can't look into the hearts of individuals and find out how they're truly resonant with divine life, not just because of what they tell you. But that this actually happens even within ourselves. Um, if you like, we've got both good rulers and bad rulers within ourselves. We've got jewels within us that can reflect the divine light and um, duds within us that don't. And if we start condemning others, we're also condemning ourselves because we human creatures can easily make mistakes about what is a reflection of the divine light and what is not. And if that's true, within the infinite life of God, the thing that seemed least reflective, least like a shining jewel, may turn out to hold an aspect of the divine that only seemed not to reflect divine life because we couldn't receive that aspect of divine life. So this is another aspect of divine plenitude, that everything falls within the life of God. And so everything ultimately can be seen to reflect this divine light. As the great Sufi teacher Ibn Arabi put it, even when we're walking away from God, we're implicitly discovering how far God's life reaches because in the walking away, we can never fully escape or leave the divine presence. Um, as St Paul put it, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the life of God. That, too, is an expression of this extraordinary divine finitude that Dante here is beginning to see that little bit more 
precisely because he is recognising his own finitude and is stirring up the love and the desire to know more, particularly in this specific question of how those who haven't heard about Christianity, how those who haven't been baptised can still be included in the life of God. This, I think, is Dante moving towards a kind of universalism and it's going to be developed further in the next canto here in the sphere of Jupiter.